Hello, and welcome to another episode of the CSEP podcast. Joining us today is Dr. Madeline Gers, Joseph Gibbons, and Dr. Guy Faulkner to talk about mental health and the role fitness industries professionals can play in supporting the mental health of their clients. Tell us a little bit about yourselves and your role in the mental health and exercise field. So my name's Dr. Madeleine Gears, and I am um, kind of in a cool position. I work in both a clinical setting in clinical health psychology with people who are experiencing congenital heart difficulties. And I'm also a postdoctoral fellow uh, with Dr. Faulkner at the Population Physical Activity Lab at UBC. And my research work is looking at how we can leverage physical activity um, to help reduce depressive symptoms in people with clinical depression. Um, and we're really interested in how do we develop programs that can be embedded in the community and embedded in the healthcare system so that people needing exercise services or, or interested in exercise services as a form of treatment can actually access them. Great. Uh, and my name is, um, is Joseph Gibbons. I've, uh, I teach full-time at Humber College and the University of Guelph Humber in Toronto. I've been doing so for the last 12 or 13 years. And actually what got me into, you know, mental health and learning more about mental health was in 2013, actually my, my best friend took his life by suicide. And actually prior to this, you know, I've been in the exercise field for a total of about 20 years. Um, obviously that changed everything for me. And at that point, then I started to really start to research, you know, mental health, how we can improve and, um, what are good strategies, what are things people can do. And, and then I took a two day workshop on mental health first aid. And then as soon as I was done the workshop, I went up to the instructors and I just said, how do I do what you do? Because teaching students that are between the ages of 18 to 24, you know, knowing that depression has gone up and suicide has gone up, um, I ended up doing the training so I could train people to be mental health first aid certified. So it was essentially that that got me into this field. And then, you know, since then, I've just been, you know, learning and teaching and, and just trying to share as much information as possible to show people that they're not alone, that resources are available and to give people strategies so that hopefully they can help people. Love to get your feedback on the uh, training module that Madeline uh, developed and that it's available through CSEP, which was exactly trying to develop that mental health first aid training for exercise professionals. I was just uh, going to say that. <laughs> Do you want to look at our stuff? Yeah, definitely. Uh, Guy Faulkner, I'm a professor at the School of Kinesiology at the University of British Columbia, uh, and I, I do research around physical activity, intervention, development, um, and evaluation, uh, but also have had a long-standing interest in physical activity, mental health, um, because of, uh, you know, I think, an important relationship to study, not only for the consequences, the mental health consequences of 
participating in physical activity, but also mental health as an antecedent of participating in physical activity, that I think it's probably a very, very strong bi-directional relationship that if we're feeling well and happy, uh, that we're more likely to engage in physical activity. I got into this work uh, a long time ago um, with, you know, just through serendipitous reasons of having an interest in physical activity and sport um, and then having a, developing an interest in psychology and, and those two kind of issues came together really uh, in, in some of the work I was doing in England where I did my graduate training uh, and had opportunities working in, in uh, the mental health sector, um, developing physical activity programs for individuals with uh, serious mental illness, primarily schizophrenia. Um, and it's continued to this day and, and morphed a little bit more to depression um, as you know, for reasons that we may get to that, that now uh, in Canada, exercise is recommended as a, a frontline treatment for, for depression. And, and so as Madeline kind of discussed or mentioned, um, really starting to explore the implementation challenges, you know, how do we provide more physical activity exercise opportunities for individuals with depression. Thank you so much for volunteering your time and expertise with our audience. The first question we have is, as an exercise professional, what are some signs that a client may be struggling and what should an exercise professional do to assess their client's mental health? There's a lot of different signs that I would be looking out for and the specific signs really depend on the person and the difficulties that they're experiencing. Um, it's, experiencing mental health symptoms is a really personal experience. And it's kind of hard to throw that great big catch-all statement on top of everyone. Um, in general, what I, what I look for is um, first people, you know, saying that they're having a hard time and, and having that communication of distress. So if they're saying, you know, I am struggling, I am feeling really down, I'm feeling really sad, I'm feeling really anxious. Those are really great things just to listen for. Um, or if they're saying things like, you know, I'm um, experiencing a lot of difficulties with motivation. I'm experiencing a lot of fatigue and a lot of tiredness. I'm experiencing a lot of body aches and pains that don't really seem to be related to my training program. Those all might be signs that the person's experiencing some symptoms. Um, I think the last thing in terms of behavior is people who are really consistently missing sessions. Um, so if people are no-showing on a really regular basis, um, that could be a sign that we want to just look out for and say that, no, maybe there's something else going on here. Yeah. And I would just add that, um, you know, as people, we're, we're pretty habitual creatures, right? We, we tend to, you know, from week to week, you exercise the same amount from week to week, you know, your happiness level, how much you laugh, how you take care of yourself, what you eat, uh, how well you sleep, all of those things, for the most part, people are, are fairly um, predictable. And so whether it's your client or a family member, a friend or a coworker, if you start to notice some inconsistencies, right? All of a sudden they stop taking care of themselves. You start to notice that they're being more recluse. They're not going out, they're not engaging as much. So normally you think about some of the things that people aren't doing or that are doing worse as a reason to, you know, start a conversation with them. But there might be instances where you actually might notice the person is all of a sudden, you know, very positive and very outgoing. And that's not where they were before. And whether the person was 
um, all of a sudden they, they became more sad or they're not taking care of themselves or now they're all of a sudden happy, you can have a conversation about both, um, you know, just asking them because, you know, even if somebody all of a sudden, you know, seemed a lot more joyous than they were before, it could be because now the person has decided that, you know, they, you know, might take their life by suicide. And I know we're getting into a heavy topic right away here, but, you know, I think it's important to know good or bad, you know, it's important to, to broach a conversation with a person so that you can find out what's going on. Um, and if it's nothing great, and then if it is, then you might be able to get a bit more information from them. Well, I, I agree with, with you. I mean, it's about that, keeping that line of communication. Uh, your mental health is, affects all of us. I mean, so, so it's, it's really important to treat uh, people as individuals and, 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 and not consider so much the, the mental health or the mental, mental illness aspect of things, but rather um, take people as individuals and uh, have that line of conversation where, where people feel comfortable talking to you uh, and you, you yourself as well feel comfortable talking to others. Uh, about how you're feeling and about when you may need help uh, and how you may be able to offer help. I think that's such a good point. It's our ability to have these difficult conversations about feelings, whether we notice that person is is feeling, you know, happier or more joyful or, or like they've had a stress relieved, like Joseph alluded to, or if they're more on the downside, or even when they're just at their baseline, having those conversations about feelings are so much easier when we know our own feelings and our own experiences and have the vocabulary to go with it. If we don't have the words to describe our own experiences, it's really hard to connect with other people and describe their experiences. Absolutely. And you guys can um, perhaps attest to this as well. Something that I noticed, so I started um, as a personal trainer back about 21 years ago at Good Life and something happened that I never expected to happen is I started training clients. And then I started to notice that these clients who, you know, most of them were old enough to be my parents, they started to open up to me in ways that I never thought, right? They started telling me about, you know, aspects of their life that I thought maybe they would just tell close personal friends or a therapist. And when it happened one or two times, I didn't think much of it. I thought, okay, we just created a bit of a connection. And then I realized that it started happening more and more. And then I thought, well, maybe there's something that something happens to people when they exercise where, you know, it spawns a lot more sharing. And so for me, this was difficult as a, as a young man, when, you know, one of my first clients was, you know, he was telling me about the struggles with his family and his job and, and things that were, were hard for me to comprehend. And I didn't know how to deal with it. I didn't know how to stay within my scope of practice because, you know, I wasn't a counselor or a therapist. And so it, it's hard. Where do you bridge that line between, you know, sitting down and talking to your client and taking all that on and trying to provide advice from a background that you don't have versus just trying to get them to the most appropriate professional help, right? And so that, that's something that I found early on in my career, just how unique that relationship is between trainer and client. I mean, people always joke that going to the gym is their therapy, but especially when you're working with a trainer, um, I think part of it is that you put yourself in such a vulnerable position. And after a couple sessions with a good trainer, 
And you know that this is like a judgment-free zone, that this is a supportive zone, that you have that proximity to each other. It does become a really safe space for a lot of people to start bringing these things up, um, which is really a kind of a thumbs up for you because you know, you've know you done good work to make them feel safe and comfortable and not judged, but also does bring us into that really difficult position of like, you know, what is my role? You know, how much can I do and when is it time to refer? And a lot of it is about more of that reflective listening, isn't it? I mean, not providing direct advice or this is what you should do, but just being someone who is listening and and reflecting back to your to a to a client. Um, and that is a hallmark of therapy. You know, when when non-directive kind of counseling or therapy where you're just a a sounding board but you know I've always been interested in how yeah is, is there something about the physical activity context that does promote that you know what you described that kind of willingness to share or um, I don't know if it's about something about the body and about the physical self that that your your I need to think about it a bit more, but it's an interesting issue about whether or not that physical activity experience or context does promote something that that allows for um, for sharing and something we've, we've been kind of toying with uh, here at, at UBC um, because we do have um, pre COVID though a counselling service just at the end of the corridor of, of where our lab is and where we do have an exercise bike and a treadmill and starting to think about uh, experimentally playing with that idea of getting people to be physically active before they go into therapy sessions and, and, and seeing does that change uh, that, that kind of experience or interaction in some way. And we've never quite, well, I've never quite been able to understand what I'm, measuring or trying to assess uh, but it's an interesting uh, point that you raised Joseph about whether the, the physical activity context is is something different in some way than 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 if you went to a closed you know office and talked to someone today's PDC code word is algae listen closely to Joseph's next point for spelling CSEP members can input the PDC code word on their CSEP account to collect 1.5 PDCs for this episode. Yeah, no, it's 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 not not something that I, yeah I've ever read or you know um, too many people have mentioned, but you know I just I, it's always stuck with me early on in my in my training career, and then you know as I started to get my footing in that career a little bit further, you start to develop you know more clear boundaries. Um, and one of the things that we teach in mental health first aid is and tell me if you guys have heard of this acronym. So it's an acronym called algae. And so whenever I come into a situation where somebody is suffering, you know, and they, they open up to me, I always go through this acronym. So the first thing I do is, you know, assess the risk of suicide and harm by asking clear and direct questions, not muddying the waters about, are you thinking about hurting yourselves or doing something crazy, asking direct questions about suicide. Uh, and then to your point guide, about listening non-judgmentally, right? So, you know, if you, there is no risk, then you start to listen, you know, and, you know, you could, you know, be that person for them, 
you know, during your training sessions or what you agree upon. And then you move on to try to give them reassurance and information that, you know, that help is available. People have gone through this before and you can succeed and you can recover. And then I think, you know, as our role as trainers or people in this field, you know, we encourage them to get to the most appropriate professional help. Um, and then the last E of algae is encouraging other supports, you know, like mindfulness, exercise, meditation, all of those different things, good diet that could support that. So I think if, because again, in the, the, the mental health first aid course from the mental health commission of Canada, it's, it doesn't train you to be a counselor or therapist, right? But it trains you to know how to recognize the signs or symptoms, ask appropriate questions questions and then get them to the most appropriate professional help. It's a pretty cool course from that perspective. And the idea that, you know, we should all have physical health first aid, you know, in case someone's bleeding or something broken and sort of needs CPRs is a skill that we should all have. And really those mental health first aid skills should be looped in there. They're essential skills of like, how do we, how do we talk to people who are experiencing this? How do we identify how do we assess and, and how do we get people to the help that they perhaps need? Absolutely. And there's some wonderful organizations out there. One is uh, the Jack Project, which was, you know, it was started because, you know, a young man at Queen's University took his life and, and then they interviewed people around him and, and then they realized, you know, oh, now I understand the signs and symptoms. I realized that his door was closed near the end, that he stopped handing in work and things like that. So being able to recognize when there's an issue. Mm -hmm. And to your other point about, you know, how it, it's, you know, we need to have physical first aid to get into a lot of these jobs, but, you know, having the mental health first aid, you know, one of the things that it's different is, you know, physical first aid is fairly linear, right? Somebody hurts themselves and you get them to help and they start getting better. But with mental health, it's, it's not linear. It could be, you know, decades that somebody is dealing with something, or maybe it's just a singular episode, but it's something where the, you know, to your guys's point, the conversation needs to keep going, right? You know, even if nothing has changed, you can still have a check-in from time to time. And then if you notice, you know, a dip in something, or, you know, they're not taking care of themselves in some way, then you definitely have a conversation in those regards. And that was pretty much, I mean, the focus of the exercise and depression training module uh, that, that was developed was, was really focusing on that mental health awareness training that I don't think there are any particularly unique skills one needs to develop as an exercise practitioner to work in the context of mental health. Uh, it's, it's these kind of transferable um, person skills, you know, that notion of empathy, um, being able to talk to people, being open to and receptive to discussion and conversation. Um, you know, that's harder to train. It's harder to teach, but that's what it boils down to, I think, really, when it comes to exercise and mental health uh, and, and the context of uh, exercise practitioners is, is about developing those communication skills um, to, to be able to, uh, talk to, talk to people and, and to be open to, to difficult conversations. And it is something that, uh, you know, I always, um, you know, mention it in the, in the mental health first aid course is that, you know, none of us are perfect with our communication and I challenge, so it's a two day course and I challenge the participants to go home 
talk to your, your partner, your husband, your wife, your, your roommate, whoever, and say, this is not a trap, but what I want you to do, can you tell me all of the things that I do when we communicate that you don't like, you know, learn about what it is that perhaps shuts the door of communication when you're having a conversation, because we all have been bad tendencies from time to time, whether it's you finish people's sentences, you don't allow for a pause for the person to catch their thought and continue talking. Um, perhaps your nonverbal communication implies that you're not listening, maybe even if you are. And so I usually challenge them to do that. And we have some, you know, some exercises with it to really bring to light, you know, what you're saying is working on some of those communication skills so that you're not putting up the bricks between you and that person so that now they feel like they can't come to you. You always want to feel like they can come to you. And so working on a few communication things can definitely help. We'll take a break here and continue with part two of this important discussion in the next episode of the CSEP podcast. I'd like to once again thank Dr. Madeline Gers, Joseph Gibbons, and Guy Faulkner for taking the time to talk about the role fitness industry professionals can play in supporting the mental health of their clients.